So preseason is finally over. New personnel have been integrated into the team. Hard work has been done to train and plan and prepare. Deep consideration has been given to the lessons learned from prior seasons. New game plans have been drawn up. There is electricity and excitement in the air, and it is finally time for the kickoff of what could easily be the most exciting season in memory. What am I talking about? This fall, Lakers Baptist Church. What did you think? You see, our vision process is finally kicking into high gear after months of planning and praying and preparing. So we've been studying for six weeks. We have been praying as a body for 35 days. And as Neil said at last, our first congregational event is here next Sunday on the 11th. So please invest your morning. Come to our joint worship at 845. That is our only worship next Sunday. If you come at 1115, you will not be worshiping. Well, you can worship on your own, but... Then move on over to the fellowship hall where we'll have some some light breakfast, some fellowship, some fun, and then we will spend some time reflecting on the and the beautiful things that God has done in our lives here at Lakers Baptist Church. And this is an event for people who, whether you've been part of this church for, for a week or two or a year or two or 20 or 30 years, this is for everyone because what you have to share about why you come here, why you stay here, that speaks to us about how God works here, how he has worked, and it informs us about how we can expect him to continue to work here. But that's just the tip of the iceberg for what's going on here. We've also got an excellent new youth director, Philip. If you haven't met him, seek him out, find him. He has hit the ground running, to say the least. He has got a clear and articulate vision. He has excellent plans for the year that are integrating not only the best of what we have done in the past, but exciting new initiatives for our youth in terms of building genuine and dynamic relationships with Jesus Christ and with each other and serving and glorifying God. We've also got new curriculum for Team Kid on Wednesday night. That's our program for elementary kids, not just the ones who come here on Sunday mornings, but we reach a lot of kids in our neighborhood on Wednesday nights for Team Kid. And, and it's going to go through the through the great truths of the Bible, really, truths about God and Jesus and humanity and sin and salvation and the Bible and God's kingdom and the church. If you look in your bulletin, there is an enormous menu of new adult Bible studies for men and women almost every single day of the week. And on Wednesday night, Pastor Mark and I would like to invite you that if you are not otherwise serving or studying somewhere on Wednesday night, Starting at 6.30 here in the sanctuary, we, we want to invite you for Encounter Jesus. And that's going to be a time of, of worship, pastoral prayer, and then a close look at the words and actions of Jesus from the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be doing this all year long. I love the Gospels. I love to talk about the Gospels. Our prayer is that we will do it in a way that's not just a benefit to those who have been studying the Bible for for many, many years, though obviously we want to benefit those, but that we will be creating an environment that is safe and comfortable for for people who maybe have never studied the Bible before, but they're interested in Jesus. They want to go deeper, but they're intimidated by normal Bible studies. So please join us and don't hesitate to invite a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody who's curious about Jesus, but you think probably would not go for a 
typical Bible study. Format-wise, you'll be able to ask me questions. I'll either answer them there or I'll get back to you the next week. But I promise I will not put anyone on the spot. Right? I'm not going to ask anybody questions. I'm not going to make them read Scripture. I'm not going to make them pray. Those are the things that are most terrifying to me You know, 20-some years ago when I first went to a Bible study and was like, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. I don't know anything. So this is an exhilarating time to be here. And so I want you to be thinking also in the mindset of inviting friends and neighbors and coworkers to join us for some of the things we do. Whether it's Sunday morning worship, whether it's Wednesday night studies and activities, whether it's in-home Bible studies, start thinking with that invitational mindset, that realization that we're on mission everywhere we go in life because our life is bringing us in contact with people who need to know Jesus. This past year has been a challenging one for us as a church, but I firmly believe that we are in this exciting time, and I am genuinely excited and fired up. I think if you, if you talk with, with anybody on staff here, we're kind of all kind of a little bit giddy and excited. And I think we're there because we've had no choice but to humble ourselves before God, to cast our anxieties and fears onto Him, and to stand firm in the faith. And in the process, we have seen Him raise up new leaders in so many different portions and ministries of our church at just the right times. We've seen him provide for all our needs. And he has dramatically illustrated the truths of today's passage, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in the second half of verse 5 and going through to verse 11. And I don't normally split verses the way I do here this morning. But in this case, the verse actually does belong that way. The first half of verse 5 is, is the conclusion of the previous thought that Peter is expressing. So we start in the middle. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. For the time being, this is our final passage in First Peter. We've been here since the beginning of July. I say for the time being because there are at least eight other passages that I would really like to preach mostly from chapters 3 and 4. But God's guidance and leading is clear, and so for now I am very excited to change gears, and in two weeks we will dig into the Old Testament prophet Malachi. So we will have to hope that God leads us back to revisit Peter sometime next year. In this passage, Peter gives his final instructions. He concludes with a series of commands about how to live out our faith on a daily basis, particularly when faced with opposition, with suffering, with persecution, when it's hard. 
whether it's opposition in our hearts or within our churches or from outside, from our enemy, the devil. And what he gives us is the plan for defeating three specific threats, arrogance, anxiety, and the adversary. Peter explains that we defeat arrogance by choosing to humble ourselves. Now, arrogance is a serious threat to our ability to reach people outside these walls with the good news of Jesus Christ. It is easy for us as longtime believers to not realize just what a barrier we put up when we convey arrogance and superiority. As individuals, arrogance is a poison that damages all of our relationships and interactions with other people. It can tear a church apart from within. And it makes it very clear to those who do not go to church that whatever else is going on in that building, it's not good news. And in fact, not only can we be arrogant as individuals, entire churches can be arrogant. And that is an even graver threat. It is a reality that 88% of Southern Baptist churches in the United States are plateaued or declining in attendance. Our church is no exception. Now, that's not a death sentence. It's a wake-up call. Right? This is a, something that can be turned around. It is something that it can be reversed. I fully expect it to be reversed here with the course that we are on, with the visioning process, with carrying that out, with the energy that I see welling up to the power of God. But it requires embracing this reality. 88% of churches are in decline. Now, some of that is the natural life cycle of a church, right? Every church is like a living organism a human being, an animal. And so every church will eventually die, right? Look at the great churches of the New Testament. They don't exist anymore. It doesn't mean their legacy doesn't live on. It doesn't mean they didn't have tremendous impact on the kingdom. In fact, while individual churches die, Christ's universal church is doing better than ever around the world. But while that's natural for some cases, that explains some of the decline The reality is much of church decline and premature death comes out of organizational arrogance. It comes from churches that are so proud of their past that they cannot see their own decline, that they cannot see the way in which they no longer reflect their community's demographics and values and needs. Organizational arrogance is blinding, and it keeps a church that should be able to adapt and thrive again from doing so. And so Peter addresses arrogance, individually and collectively, in verses 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So humility, the cure for arrogance, the point here is that it is a choice. It is an act of the will. We are, in Peter's words, to clothe ourselves with humility exactly the same way we get dressed in the morning. We put on that humility. It recognizes that we're not naturally humble, necessarily, but that we make a choice to put it on. 
So even if arrogance comes naturally, God's command is to consciously choose to be humble. And so Peter leads off with this command that has a consequence. Clothe ourselves with humility towards one another or be opposed by God. That's a pretty stark choice. I don't want to be opposed by God. Hopefully you don't want to be opposed by God either. That's not a real successful plan for life. And so if you don't want to be opposed by God, we have to treat each other with humility. Now, if you're someone who is highly gifted, and I know you all are, if you're talented, and I know you all are, if you're knowledgeable or successful or wealthy, it's really easy to begin to think that you are better than the other people in this room. But Peter is clear. Don't let yourself think that way. Choose to be humble towards one another at all times, in thought and in behavior. Now, we are often confused about humility in our culture, and so C.S. Lewis explains it best. I love it. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? It's not pretending, oh, I'm really bad at this thing when you're really good and you're really just trying to get compliments. That's not humility. True humility is thinking of yourself less. Clothing ourselves with humility is about considering each other's interests and needs and preferences before we consider our own. At its most basic level, it is about realizing that no matter what another person's physical, mental, spiritual, or financial condition is, they are still made in the image of God. They are not more loved because of their situation, they are not less loved because of their situation. And once we get that figured out, Peter tells us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So first was how do we relate to other people? Now he talks to how we relate to God. Humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Well, that, that should be easy, right? We'd all agree right off that God's all-powerful and we're not. Check, we're done. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about some intellectual agreement that God's powerful and we're limited. He's talking about something much more difficult than that. It's about admitting that God can and should and does control our lives. Now that can be hard to let go of. Because we desperately want to cling to the illusion that we control ourselves and our lives. Now, for the average, comfortable American, that's an illusion that gets pretty powerful. We, we tend to believe that for years on end until some crisis intervenes and we realize, oh, we never actually had control in the first place. Peter is imploring us to get ahead of the crisis. Let ourselves be humbled before it happens. Turn that control over to God. Ultimately, that's what it means to follow him. This includes believing that God can really pull off his vision for your life. As a church, it means humbling ourselves before God and truly believing 
that he can pull off his vision for this church, no matter how difficult it may seem for our rational minds. Because I promise you that as we go through this visioning process, through our meetings this, this next week to talk about our past, in October to talk about our present, in November to talk about our future, as this gets formulated into a vision that we can embrace and say, this is God's vision, there will be times where our response to what he has to say to us is like, that's impossible. We can't do that. Well, humbling ourselves beneath his mighty hand is about turning over that sense of control, that we have to control every aspect of everything and say, no, God is calling us to this thing. I believe he can do this. If you've been keeping up with our 40 days of prayer, this week we had day 32, and I I liked it a lot because it was talking about realizing that our God is not too small to accomplish his purpose. That's a significant act of humbling ourselves. As a bunch of type A's who love planning everything out to the nth degree, right? I'm, I'm certainly one of them, to say there are things that are beyond my ability to plan for, but God's got it. That's a level of humbling that's hard to do. But the beautiful thing is that if we can do this, if we can humble ourselves as individuals and as a church, if we can humble ourselves towards each other, if we can humble ourselves beneath God's hand, at the proper time, he can exalt us. And that's the irony, isn't it? Because arrogance is the desire to exalt ourselves or to be exalted by other people. But real exaltation, the kind that matters for all eternity, only comes from humility. Then Peter addresses the threat of anxiety, saying that we defeat anxiety by throwing it onto God. We love to worry, don't we? We worry about money, health, career, family, Church, world events, terrorism, politics, who's not worried right now? (laughs) Retirement, crime, so many things. Who's going to admit that they're anxious about these things? Who's going to be honest and say, yes, I am anxious about at least one of the things on this list? Because I'm willing to bet many of us are. But the Bible makes it clear over and over again. As Christians, we shouldn't be anxious about anything. Anxiety is a very real threat to our ability to serve God, and we need to recognize that. Anxiety keeps us, both individually and as a church, from stepping out in faith and doing the things God calls us to do. Because we'll get excited, right? God calls us to something, and initially we're very excited about it. Then we start thinking, well, what if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't happen? Then we start thinking about what are the consequences if it goes wrong? What are the costs? What is it, how does it affect my reputation, my family, my finances, all these things? We think more and more and more about it, and anxiety paralyzes us. It keeps us from accomplishing the task of growing God's kingdom. And so verse 7 says, To humble ourselves before God by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
That word casting can also be translated as throwing. That's the concept. Throwing anxieties. God wants us to throw each of our anxieties onto him. So we don't have to worry about him anymore. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for each of us. And in fact, this verse is continuing the thought about humbling ourselves. This is actually the rest of the sentence. So the specific way we're supposed to humble ourselves under God's hand is to refuse to be anxious and to turn over the control of things that we can't control anyway. You see, at its heart, anxiety is a refusal to humble ourselves before the good and powerful and loving God who has control over every situation. Right? Because because genuine worry about the things we can deal with, we deal with that. Anxiety, if you think about it, is almost always about the stuff we can't really control. And so we worry about it and we think, well, how can I control this? You can't. You can turn it over to God. He cares for us. And so we humble ourselves by throwing our anxieties onto him. So now we have a little audience participation time. right? I want to take a minute. I want you to take this minute and begin to mentally go through your mind. Walk through each of your anxieties. And maybe you have an empty list, and that's okay. That's great. But maybe you got more than one or two floating around in there. So go through your mind about your anxieties. What are you anxious about, about your family, about your job, about your finances, about your country, about your church? And I want you to name each one and then throw it on to God. Just say to yourself, Lord, I guess you're talking to God. Say mentally, Lord, you've got control over this, and I will not be anxious about it anymore. So go ahead, and one by one, even as I keep talking, throw your anxieties onto God. Are you throwing them? Know in your heart that he is mighty, and he cares for you. So throw them onto him. He loves you and wants what's best for you. So throw them on to him. Keep throwing them on to him because he's always there for you and he wants you to throw them on to him. He wants them from you. Throw them on to him. He can do more for you than you can ever possibly do for yourself. So let him throw those anxieties on to him. And remember that page after page, the Bible is the witness to his power. He can deal with these things. And his love for you. He wants to do these things. That's how we deal with anxiety. And finally, Peter addresses the threat of the devil in verses 8 and 9. Commanding us to defeat the adversary by alert, faithful resistance. The adversary, Satan, is a threat because he hates any church that is faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and making disciples. And he hates any Christians who are boldly living out the faith and example of Jesus Christ. And realize that Satan doesn't destroy us as a church or an individual by 
by getting us to worship him. That's not necessary. His goal is to make us ineffective. You see, ineffective churches are more useful to him than non-churches because they're so self-absorbed, such a waste of kingdom resources, so ugly and off-putting to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ that they're making his job easier. Ineffective Christians are just as good to the devil as non-Christians because they portray such a false image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the adversary is happy if we're still functioning as a church, but we're so focused on battling each other or criticizing other churches or falling into sin or, or worrying about trivialities that we don't focus on building God's kingdom right here in Lake Ridge. And so Peter commands us to resist him. Well, what does resistance look like? Well, fortunately, it does not look like the exorcist, right? So at least we don't need a mop. Rather, Peter lists four ways we resist the devil. We resist the devil by being sober-minded. That literally speaks to having a clarity of mind and conduct at all times so that we are mentally prepared 24-7. That is why there is no place for getting drunk or abusing drugs in the Christian life. Because we have to have all our faculties all the time to resist the devil. We resist the devil by being watchful, staying on alert for his attacks. And this is kind of an interesting contrast with the previous verses, right, about anxiety. Because anxiety is unproductive worrying about hypothetical threats, right? That's what we're supposed to throw on to God. But the desire of the adversary to make us ineffective is a real threat. And so we are to stay watchful and alert and to realize that even when things are going great and we're doing awesome things for God's kingdom, that there is an enemy out there who wants to tear it all down. And he will strike when we least expect it. He will strike from a place we least expect it. And he will strike through those whom we least expect. I wish we had more time to talk about this like all morning. Because it's quite interesting, but I will be brief because it's almost lunchtime. If we are watchfully resisting the devil in our personal lives, if we are being holy through the power of the Holy Spirit, as, as Bill talked about last Sunday, then the unexpected attack is often from our family, or against our family, rather. It is no coincidence that many people who are making a difference for God's kingdom get blindsided by a family crisis. So be watchful and guard your family. And then I'll say something that might be shocking or controversial. All too often, the attack on a believer or on a church will come through another Christian in that church. Now I want to be clear. We have no enemies sitting in the seats here. Right? We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Our enemy is the adversary, the devil. We do not war against flesh and blood, as Paul says. But the devil loves to work through Bible-believing, Scripture-quoting Christians whom he can distract 
from God's primary mission of making disciples. If he can get us focused on secondary or divisive issues, it can render the whole church ineffective. So be watchful and guard your priorities and guard the priorities of this church. We resist the devil by being encouraged by the example of suffering Christians throughout the world. And there are so many resources available online, in print, media, and if you think it's in the bulletin, talks about the movie, The Insanity of God, on the 13th, that share both historical and contemporary examples of how people hold firm in the faith, so that we know if they can hold firm in the faith under Roman persecution, in Nazi death camps, against ISIS genocide, or in a North Korean prison camp, then we can hold up under much less persecution for living boldly for the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And finally, we resist the devil by holding firm to the faith. As you read Peter's words, I think this is the most important part of the resistance. And so we hold firmly and dearly to the fact that there is a God who is great and holy and righteous and perfect. We hold firmly and dearly to the fact that no matter how hard we try, how much Bible we read, no matter how often we pray, no matter how much we give to the poor, no matter how much we try to act good and moral, we still mess up sometimes. We have all sinned, probably in the last seven days, and we will sin again. We hold firmly and dearly to the fact that a great, holy, righteous, and perfect God cannot tolerate the presence of that sin. So there is no way we could possibly earn our way into his presence. We hold firmly and dearly to the fact that despite our sin, God is so full of grace and mercy and love that he provided a solution to our problem at terrible cost to himself. We hold firmly and dearly to the fact that to satisfy his justice and his righteousness, the only way to deal with our sin was for God to provide an infinitely perfect and holy and righteous sacrifice to pay the terrible debt that each of us has accumulated. That God provided that sacrifice through his unique and eternal son, Jesus Christ, who was present at creation, who holds the universe together, but voluntarily chose to take a human nature and step into this world 2,000 years ago to live and teach and preach and work miracles and to suffer terribly and die on a Roman cross. We hold firmly and dearly to the fact that on the third day after his death, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, physically alive, able to be touched, to eat, to interact, first with his closest disciples and then with over 500 people. And that because of his victory over sin and death, we hold firmly and dearly to the fact that for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
He provides forgiveness and eternal life. And that's how we resist the devil. And know this. After a little while, which may be days or it may be decades, because it's all a little while compared to eternity, that God himself will restore us. This word is describing mending something like a broken bone. He will restore our brokenness. He will fix us. He will strengthen us. He will set us firmly. That is the promise of verse 10, which we see so powerfully echoed in Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the beauty and the amazing reality of your Son's sacrifice for us. That he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that through his victory over sin and death, we also have victory over sin and death. We have victory over arrogance, anxiety, and the adversary. So Lord, help us to walk out of here firm and confident in that victory. So we may live for you and carry out the vision you have for us, for our lives, and for this church. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning is to victory over arrogance, anxiety, and the adversary, the one who wants to devour us. And that victory can only come through the one who is already victorious over sin and death, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To achieve that victory, you must first accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing that he died for your sins, that you repent of those sins, that you put your faith in the risen Christ. That's the decision that gives everlasting life. That's the decision that gives victory. And if you've made that decision this morning or in recent days, I invite you to come forward as we sing so we can celebrate together. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're not yet a member of this church, I invite you to come forward as we sing and unite with us. Walk forward with us into the bright future where we love and support and sustain one another as we share the good news of God's kingdom with this community around us. And for everyone here, I ask and pray that you would ask God to reveal areas of your life where you need to put on humility. Maybe it's towards another person in this room. Maybe it's towards God himself. To identify anxieties where you need to let go of what you're holding on so tight and just throw it on to him. And then pray for God's help in firmly resisting our adversary, knowing that through God's grace and power, the devil does not stand a chance. And that God himself will restore and comfort you when the battle's won.